0: Turn your Bibles this morning. We're back in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study of this letter. We are coming to the conclusion, not today, but a couple weeks maybe, we'll be at the end of this letter, and uh, it's been a rich letter to us. Peter's primary message has been to confront the false teachers that are on the scene. One of the false doctrines that they have been propagating is the one that it um, doesn't necessarily deny the second coming of Christ, but they don't, be, they don't believe that it's going to involve any kind of judgment. Um, that is an uh, uncomfortable doctrine for people to hear, that God is a judge, that uh, there's a hell. That is something that people cringe when you and I say that. They don't like that in our, in our message. But that's what salvation is, my friends. It's salvation from hell. It's not salvation to a better marriage. It's not salvation to a better job. It's not salvation to a better life. It's salvation from the wrath of God to come. Ann was sharing with me yesterday a prayer letter that came to our house from Jim and Lynn Kessler. You you know we used to support them. Uh, They are living in the Midwest in Oklahoma, I believe. But he mentioned something I thought was really good in this prayer letter. He talked about his, his two sisters, as they were growing up, they went to a good news club, much like what we have going on at Kate Sullivan. But they went to a good news club And his mom, he said, was all excited when they would go to that meeting and hear things like, uh, God loves us, Jesus loves us, Jesus died for us. She liked that, and she enjoyed them going and encouraged them to go. But one week, they came home and said, we learned about hell today. And she would not let them go back. My friends, we've experienced that, by the way, with our Good News Club. But eventually, God used that event and other events in his mom's life, and she came to Christ. And sometimes that confrontation with the reality and the truth is what opens people's eyes. God uses to open people's eyes that that's a real, real possibility for everyone. who real possi- It's a real reality for anyone who rejects Christ. And the only way and the only possibility you have for salvation is the reality that Christ came to save you from that wrath of God because that's what salvation means. He came on a rescue mission. He came to save us from God's wrath, from his own wrath because of, because of sin. Well, in chapter 3, he has been refuting the false teachers because they have been uh, preaching a message that leaves hell out of the picture Yeah, Jesus is coming back maybe, but it's not anything to do with a judgment. And the scriptures are very clear, and he spends many verses in chapter 3 refuting that. He's done it before, he'll do it again. He will destroy this world again, he's done it before. And he gives examples with Sodom and Gomorrah, he gives examples of the flood. And we are living in the days like the days of Noah, and we should have no reason to believe that we too might face that. Uh, we will face that sometime in the future. We don't know exactly when that will be. You see verse 12, we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of God. The previous verse talks about the destruction that will come. Verse uh, 13 talks about looking for a new heavens and a new earth. It's all in chapter 3. In verse 12, he says, there'll be intense heat. And elements will melt and this universe will disintegrate. This is a, a disposable planet and one day God is going to bring about a new heavens and a new earth, a time known as the Day of God. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 21. People can get really caught up on end times and uh, talking about end times and, and things like that and uh, it almost becomes the most important doctrine there is and that's not what we're about here. We don't want to be known by our eschatology. We have convictions about our eschatology, but we recognize it's difficult to be precise in some areas of eschatology. We certainly don't break fellowship with people that hold differing views, but we have seen people get really caught up in eschatology. Years ago, and this has happened times since, I'm sure, as well, but years ago, there was a guy named Edgar, maybe Edgar Wisnot, who wrote a book on 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. Uh, and guess what? It didn't happen. And, uh, but he was not discouraged by that because he felt like, well, maybe I just miscalculated. And so the very next year, he writes a book, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1989. Sold less books, but now he couldn't sell a book if he wanted to. But that's just how people get sometimes caught up in end times and we don't want to be about that but we certainly want to speak where god speaks and with clarity you want to be clear and we do have convictions about that and we will often share those in light of passages we come to and especially the passages that we've been we've been looking at one day this world as we know it will end that's what we're told here that's what we're told in revelation chapter 21. Peter says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, that Old Testament term. I took you through the book of Joel a a few weeks ago and we talked about that, Well, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then he comes to verse 11 and we'll spend some time here this morning. Since, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since that's in the future, what is your present situation to look like what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness and he's not really giving a question there he's making a statement it's more like an exclamation it's more like astonishment it's more like just the thought that this is going to happen how excellent ought you to be that's his point in godliness and in your holy conduct uses those two words and he's basically saying you need to conform your lives to the reality of what eternity will one day bring. This is what we've been saved for. We're not to live for this world. This world is not our home. This world, we're citizens of heaven. Our lives would reflect our citizenship in heaven as we talked about last week. Holy conduct, your actions, godliness, your attitude, both your heart and your behavior. And then he's going to now give a list of things that you can do and where to do. He says in verse 1, excuse me, verse 12, he says we are to, notice in verse 12, he says we are to live with expectancy, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, or looking for, looking for the day of the Lord. We're to be looking for that, we are to be... like we saw last week in our passage in Philippians chapter 3, we're to be eagerly awaiting. Uh, we are to be, have an anticipation about it. Uh, we are to be like leaning, stretching our necks forward. Mm-hmm. When is this going to happen? When is he going to come back? When are you going to come and uh, bring that kingdom that will be characterized by righteousness, And uh, we're not glued to this world, we're not glued to temporal things, we're looking to eternal things. Um, We live in this world, but we're not of this world. And we know this is not our home, and this is what gives us hope that this is not all there is. If anything, Peter is giving you a picture of the reality that life is not meaningless, A lot of people think life is meaningless. We're just put here and it's live your 70 plus years and die and it's all done. And that's the end of everything. If anything, Peter is saying, no, life does have meaning. All things are culminating in Christ. Uh, One day, it will be him reigning over all things. And you want to make sure you're in that kingdom and you want to make sure you belong to him because the future belongs to him. And We have a hope that everything that happens has a purpose. History is going somewhere. It's his story. It's headed in a direction from Genesis to Revelation. God has revealed himself to us. And in the revealing of himself, we see the plan, the meta-narrative going from uh, the fall, the, the, the creation of the world, the fall of man to the redemption of man to one day when we're back in the garden again. Garden to garden, that's it. Garden of Eden, back to the garden again. It's all headed somewhere. And that's a reality that we as believers have because God has shown us that clearly in His Word. It's not just a hopeless existence, a meaningless existence. Because a lot of people have that attitude today. It's just going nowhere, and my life thus is going nowhere, and nothing in life has any purpose or meaning, just a lot of disconnected events is how they interpret things random. And no wonder everybody's scared. I'm just a victim. I'm a victim of random events. It's the mindset of so many, such a hopelessness. I, got, I, I took an article to, to someone this past week don't waste your cancer. I thought it was a great article by John Piper. Don't waste your cancer. Even God has a purpose for your cancer. Even God has a purpose for the disease you've got. The sickness you've got. Because it's all headed somewhere. If this world were not going anywhere, if it was just random, if it was just disconnected events, I would say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But we've got a direction, we've got a purpose, a reason for being here. If anything that Peter gives us in these verses is history, it's a major history lesson. It's all going somewhere. The second point I want to make this morning, I'll spend more time on this, but you notice it in verse um, verse 11, excuse me, verse 12 as well. And hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Looking for the day of the Lord and hastening the day of the Lord. Interesting, Spend a little time here Stay with me on this one. This is, gets a little complicated. Hebert is, the, is a primary, uh, I forgot his first name, but Hebert is a, a primary commentary that I've been using in my study of 2 Peter. And he makes an interesting point here that I think is valid. And I want to stay with this this morning, this point. He says that we have a part In the hastening of the coming of the Lord. In the hastening of the coming of the Lord. His point is, the word normally means earnestly desire something. The word hasten means we earnestly desire something to happen. But he says that's not the meaning here. And I think he's right. Because he's just got through talking about that at the beginning of the verse. Where he said, looking for. Now he changes to something else. Hastening. Hastening. His point is, you and I can have a part in the hastening of the coming of the Lord. Hastening normally means to urge on. Well, hastening means to urge on, it means to speed up or to accelerate something. Yeah, that's what I'm saying this morning. We can have a part in the acceleration, the speeding up of the coming of the Lord. So you're sitting there wondering, Rod, I thought you believed in a sovereign God. I thought you believed in a God who's in control of all things. I thought you believed in a God who who sets the days and the events and the timing of all the events of history. Yes, I do. I do. that. I believe that very much. But this is the human responsibility of the God-sovereignty equation. God-sovereignty, human responsibility. He uses us to move His sovereign time along to the coming of the end times. Somehow, in His sovereignty, and His sovereign timing, is factored in our behavior and our actions. They're real. Our actions are real. I don't know how this works, I don't know the tension, how to resolve the tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But I know the Bible speaks of other examples where there's a tension. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. I can't explain that. The scriptures were written by God, God God-breathed. The scriptures were written by human authors. I can't resolve the tension. And in the same way, as far as the acceleration of or the hastening of or the speeding up of the coming of the Lord, God does the same thing. He uses instruments to do it, human instruments to do it. Hard one to get our minds around. These things work together. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon a long time ago, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Spurgeon says, I don't try to reconcile friends. Right? He said they're both in the Bible. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They're not at odds with each other. They go together and you don't reconcile friends. So we asked the question, What is it or what can we possibly do to make it move along? That's the question. What can we do to hasten the day of the coming of the Lord? Is there anything revealed in Scripture that affects the timing of his return? Yes, go back to verse 9. We talked about this a few weeks ago. 2 Peter 3, 9. Notice, the Lord is not slow About his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. couple observations. One, we said last time, this is not preaching universalism. This is not preaching God is just waiting for the whole human race to get saved. It's not preaching that. In fact, the word toward you, Peter is speaking to believers, toward you, but but is patient toward the Lord's people not wishing for any of the Lord's people to perish, but for all the Lord's people to come to resent repentance. I believe this is the, the doctrine of divine election. He, he's, he's not slow, but rather he's patient toward his people, the elect, coming to repentance. That's what that verse is talking about. God is waiting for the elect, and I'm going I'm to develop this, so if you're sitting there getting uncomfortable, just hang on. But he's waiting for the elect to come to salvation. He's waiting for the evangelistic effort toward the elect before he comes again and for them to repent and come to salvation in Christ. God is sovereign, yes. He's sovereign in absolutely everything. That's the most comforting doctrine I know, folks. I can sit down with somebody and say, he is absolutely in control of everything. There's not anything outside of his control and that even includes salvation. I will build my church. But I also believe that we have, I can't be so locked into that that I forget about human responsibility. I can't be so locked into that that I think, okay, que sera, sera. What kind of theology is that? William Carey, who is the father of missions, was a strong believer in the sovereignty of God. William Carey was an apprentice in a cobbler shop. That's shoes, not desserts. He was an apprentice in that. God put in his heart a burden for India, So he goes to this Baptist mission board that didn't do missions, by the way. I don't know why they had to have a Baptist mission board in that year, but they had one. He went to them and said, I believe God wants me to go to the heathen of India. He wants me to go to those unbelievers in India and reach them. To which a elderly man looked at him and said, young man, you're so enthusiastic. But if God wants to reach The the unbelievers in India, God will do it without your help. William Carey went to India anyway, spent 41 years there, translated into many languages that that were present on that continent, on that uh, in that country, and saw, didn't see a whole lot of converts in his lifetime, but eventually he laid the foundation for the eventual conversion of many, many Indians to Christ the translation work that he did was incredible biography is fascinating get it some time and and look at that but we don't want to be like that in our belief in God's sovereignty where we think we're not needed to do anything we the Bible says exactly opposite you're here today because somebody some God used somebody some instrument human instrument in your life he does not bypass human instruments well you say no I came to Christ. I was just sitting in church one day or I was sitting at home one day just reading my Bible. Well, Friends, who did God use to write the Bible? Who's prayed? Somebody prayed for you. Somebody shared the gospel with you. You heard it. You must hear it to believe it. Turn to Romans 10. He uses us to accomplish His sovereign work is my point this morning. This is how I hasten. This is how I hasten the coming of the day of God. Notice in Romans chapter 10, Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, talking about his own people, the Jews. He cares about them. Verse 1, Brethren, My heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, is their salvation. I pray that my fellow ethnic Jews will come to Christ. But then go down to verse 13. For whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved, Jew or Gentile. Whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he asked a rhetorical question. Verse 14, 10 14 of Romans. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You know, you don't really find many things written down calling feet beautiful. But here you got it. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. Verse 16, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He says, I was sent with the word you and I are sent with the word to share the word of Christ. Back at verse 15 of 1015, Romans 10:15, he quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 7: How beautiful are the feet. I just said that. Some say God is not sovereign. Excuse me, God is sovereign and doesn't need us. And this verse says that's not true. He uses us. And I would say to you, any theology that dampens our passion for evangelism is not biblical theology. You can get so out of balance on things and you you go into heresy. The Bible says both are there, and we acknowledge both. Paul believed that. Look and go to turn to 2 Timothy 2 8. He also lived that. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, remember, speaking of Timothy, Paul writes this Remember Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Hey, Timothy, when you're afraid, when you're timid, remember Jesus Christ. Verse 9 For which Christ I suffered hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal but the word of god is not in prison timothy when you think of backing off remember what i suffered for christ remember how i suffered for christ notice verse 10 for this reason i endure all things what for the sake of those who are chosen you see that for the sake of the elect, in some translations, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. This is why I endure, for the sake of those whom God has chosen. I go and preach that those whom God has prepared would believe. did not mean everybody's going to believe he preaches to. A lot of people went to throw him in jail, called him a criminal, harassed him, beat him up. But he knew there were some out there some out there that needed to hear because God was preparing them before the foundation of the world to believe. Listen, God has has put this plan together. God is the one that put on William Carey's heart to go to India because God knew that whatever he decided, there would be fruit somehow. So, So Paul never had the attitude, I don't do anything. That was not a view of evangelism. That was not a view of hastening the day, the coming of the day of God. He worked hard. And see, it's hard to reconcile these. I get that. But we need to be evangelistic. The sooner the elect come to Christ, the sooner the second coming. That's what 2 Peter 3.9 says. The sooner the elect come to Christ, The millennium kingdom and and the the day of god and all of those things we talked about in weeks past turn with me to acts chapter 3 verse 17 acts chapter 3 verse 17 acts chapter 3 verse 17. this is peter's second sermon it probably says that in your bible ahead if you have headings in your bible he's speaking to a jewish audience and he says this in verse 17 of Acts chapter 3. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer and has thus fulfilled. He told you, what he's saying there, he told you he would come. And then he gets evangelistic with them. He says, therefore, verse 19, repent, and return. Repent and return so that, notice, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Interesting. Times of, repre- of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He says, if you repent, this is a reference to the kingdom that they're looking for. If you repent, that just hastens the day of the kingdom coming. It's kind of booked in with verse, um, verse 20 says, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Notice 21, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. He kind of bookends this. He bookends this in saying that Jesus, uh, Jesus is this king it's his kingdom. That's the kingdom you're looking for. And it's the Lord who's going to bring these things in. And Israel's spiritual condition is connected to that coming kingdom. Do you see that? Do you see that, what, Paul, what Peter is saying? That that kingdom is connected to your spiritual condition. And if we had time this morning, I could take you into Zechariah and show you that prior to him coming, there's going to be a generation of Jews who cry out in repentance to him prior to the kingdom coming. That's another subject for another day. But the point is, we see this hastening language in that passage. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Got you turning a lot today. Matthew 24, notice this verse. I believe this is taking place during a time on earth where there's great tribulation in the world. The period of the great tribulation. He says in verse 14, Of Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Notice, and then the end will come. See my point this morning? How do I involve myself in this hastening work? It's called sharing the gospel. It's called evangelism. It's called To go into all the world and to preach so that the elect might believe. During that period of time, that Matthew 24 passage tells us many will come to Christ and they're saved because of evangelism. They're saved because of evangelism. They're saved because they heard a preacher preach the words about Christ, the truth about Christ, and they believed. And it's all related to the coming of Christ because the end will come. So we're to be involved in the godly activity of evangelism as we wait for his return. You say, what are we supposed to be doing? What kind of people are we to be? We're to be involved in sharing the gospel with others. We're to be proclaiming the gospel. One other thing, go to Matthew 6, and I... Hmm, I was going to say this has to be the last time, but it may not be. Ma- Matthew 6, Matthew 6, one last thing. This is the Lord's Prayer. You're familiar with it. The Lord's Prayer is not wrong to recite the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with reciting it. There is something wrong with reciting it and not thinking about what you're saying. That would be rote and mechanical and uh, empty. Um, If you look at Luke's cross-reference to this instruction about the Lord's Prayer, the question they're asking is, Lord, teach us to pray. He didn't ask them, Lord, teach us a prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. And so he kind of gives guidelines here on how to pray. That's what this is about. But you notice in verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray that his kingdom will come. We know it's his will that his kingdom is going to come. We pray according to his will that his kingdom will come. Now, there's two aspects to his kingdom. His kingdom is where, wherever the king is. That's his kingdom. If you're a Christian, the king lives in you, and there's a spiritual sense in which the kingdom of God is in you. But There's also a literal sense, we believe, that there's going to be a literal kingdom one day. We pray that that will come. So what am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you both prayer and evangelism. Though we hold strongly to the sovereignty of God, prayer and evangelism are our human responsibility. Both of those things. So what does this tell us about the kind of people we're to be? Pray for the lost, share the gospel, support the work of missions, tell people how to be delivered from the wrath of God, it will be looking for opportunities. Do you look for opportunities with neighbors and friends and and classmates and, and family? I want to tell you something. It's very easy to stand in this pulpit on a Sunday morning and talk to you like this. It's very easy. You're not canceling me. You're not rushing the stage. It's very easy. You're not asking me questions. I don't give you a chance to. You're not you're, you're not asking me questions about what I'm saying and challenging it in any way. It's this is I got an easy job for this thing called evangelism on Sunday mornings. You're going to face people that are going to ask you questions. People tell you they don't like the doctrine of hell. And other things like that. Jesus being the only way to God. They don't like our message. People ask questions that you don't know the answer to. It's very, you feel very inadequate. I understand. I feel the same way. I feel very comfortable up here, but put me in a coffee shop talking to somebody that's an unbeliever that's coming at me with all kinds of questions and, and hostility or whatever. Very, very different. Very difficult. Very, very difficult. We need to tell people, though, we need to tell people that God is just and He's righteous and He's holy and nobody gets away with sin. And I may not know the answer to all your questions, but I know that is true. And God's justice demands payment for sin. And Christ's work on the cross satisfied God's justice and satisfied God's wrath. And he offers salvation as a gift. Believe and repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's my job as a pastor to, to, to deliver bad news. Bad news. I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could be like Kayla of that radio station. Positive. Oh, God, I get tired of hearing that. So positive and encouraging. I wish I could always be like that. And I'm just thinking, that's just not the world I, I live in, in the Bible. I just don't live in that world. I don't know where they get that. But folks, you know, you know. That we are living in the aftermath of a day where everybody used to think you were great if you were a convictional Christian. People would think, oh, that's so good. You've got convictions and they're from the Bible. That's great. People would think, hey, that's a wonderful thing. But there are those convictions that we hold to today are viewed by many to be ugly and dangerous and mean. If I wanted to throw a, throw a time bomb into the middle of... Tallahassee, all I have to stand up and do is say that marriage is for one man and one woman and just blow up. I would throw a time bomb into the city if I just said that there's only two genders, male and female. And all I'm doing is quoting the Bible. All I'm doing is quoting, all I'm doing is quoting Mark 10. God create, In the beginning, God created male and female God decided that, you can tell the difference, you can't change it, you don't get to choose. That kind of talk is viewed as hateful and dangerous in our culture. Defining marriage as I did earlier, same thing, same passage, Mark chapter 10, same message from Jesus. A man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. One man, one man, one woman in marriage. And you would think that we hate everybody when we say things like that. But ten years ago, everybody thought that. Everybody thought that. And now we're living in a culture that hates us because we Say those things, those convictions. There are convictions. We didn't make the rules. We simply say what Jesus said in Mark 10. So I'm just trying to say that if you're going to be a Christian with convictions in this day and time, there's a cost. It's going to cost you. It used to be easy because our culture the moral framework of our culture lined up so much with the Bible. So we enjoyed years of just cultural cultural Christianity. I don't even think cultural Christianity exists anymore because I think people are starting to realize to say you're a Christian in this culture means you've got certain convictions that are ugly and hateful and mean. I think that's what the unbeliever, a lot of unbelievers think that. And so it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. If we're going to pull this evangelism thing off, we've got to count the cost. We've got to realize what Jesus told us and warned us about, that that it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. And so we have to decide what we're made of, I guess, is the issue. We have to decide are we going to be truly followers of Christ? Do we just follow him when it's easy? Do we just follow him when there's no price to pay? This is an American concept more than it's a concept anyplace else in the world, who count the cost all the time. But we have to be people of conviction. We cannot let our convictions just slide away. And just I went to a conference a few weeks ago in Jacksonville. Ann and I attended a conference over there, and we heard Heath Lambert speak, and he talked about this conviction and compassion thing. I thought this was really good. He said, you can't really be a person of compassion unless you have convictions. He said, you can't really be a person of compassion unless you stand for something. Because, he says, if you don't, then you just, if you don't, if you don't have any convictions, he says, then your compassion just lets you agree with sin. It just lets you go along with things so you can avoid any kind of conflict. He said, we've got to be people of conviction and compassion. He says, compassion, compassion needs to have this added to it. It needs to have humility added to it. Conviction needs, compassion needs to say, yes, I know God's word says these things. But I too am a sinner, that's humility. I too fail, yes I fail, I mess up. My sins may not be some of the ones we're seeing in our culture, but I too have sinned in my heart. I have lusted in my heart. I'm a sexual sinner too. We need to have compassion that's clothed in humility. We need to hold to our convictions, recognizing that we don't even always live up to all our biblical convictions either. We need to be willing to say humbly, yes, I need a savior too. Yes, he died for me and I'm so glad because I needed forgiveness too. My sins were many and I needed his compassion and I need to show compassion. And that's the second part of the of the compassion element. You you add humility to it. Lambert said, but you also add Jesus to it. He's the answer. He's the answer. And we all need Jesus. We all need forgiveness. We've all sinned. We've all failed. The battleground may be in those areas today, but the truth of the matter is sin is more than just those things. And we're all guilty. We're all guilty. We all need to. We all need to seek forgiveness evangelize the lost. We need to do it with humility. We need to do it with the gospel, true gospel. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to stand for what is right, even if we're persecuted for it. Even if we're persecuted. And this is, this, is, this is costly for some of you more than me. Uh, I don't feel like I'm going to lose my job over what I'm saying right now. I don't I mean the elders other elders agree with me and most of you probably agree with me but I know it's different for some of you who live who work in the in the workplace and some of these views will absolutely get you labeled and maybe fired I understand I pray for you I, I it's it's a total battleground right now and I pray for you and if you God give you wisdom how to maneuver the environment that we're in It's very difficult. So it's easier for me to stand here and say these things than it is for some of you. And you need to pray for others who are in positions where they're on the front lines of things, people in government especially, and other situations where they they would be absolutely canceled (laughs) for their views on things like this. We are living in a world of darkness and we've got to mingle compassion and conviction together. We've got to keep those together. We can't just let go of convictions because we're scared of the culture. We can't. We can't do that. We, we don't have to worry about fighting cultural wars anymore. There's no cultural war anymore. We, that's gone. We've, the, that's been lost a long time ago. We are living in darkness now. We are living in everybody's calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. Everybody is just totally, minds are absolutely corrupt, as Romans 1 says. There's no cultural war. The only hope this culture has is that you and I as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, take the truth of the gospel to our culture. That's the only hope anybody has in this culture right now. There is no other message out there that will redeem anybody's soul. There is no message out there that will get anybody in a right relationship with God except the gospel of Christ. We need to cling to that because it will hasten the coming of the Lord. Jesus said this when he ascended. He said this, They're all. when's the kingdom coming? When's the kingdom coming? When's the kingdom coming? Acts 1, 6 says, he said, that's not for you to know. This is what you need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I just got to trust the power that's in me to sustain me and give me the words when I'm in those situations I don't know how to answer or speak. And so, let me pray for us and we will ponder these thoughts because we do have hope. We have hope in a God who is in control of all of this. We live in a difficult world and we have a, but we have a message of hope. We have a message of hope for those who are struggling in these sins that we we confront. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your gospel. We praise you and we love you. We just ask you, God, to give us boldness and courage in this day in which we live. It's really tough, God. It's tough out there. We want to be faithful to this calling. We'll be faithful to proclamation of truth because the world needs it so badly and so many lies We pray that you will give us the courage to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.